One striking feature of the record of God's creative acts in Genesis 1 is that the created things are fully ready to perform their appointed tasks. On day 3, God created the plants mature, already bearing seeds. Later on, on days 5 and 6, he created animals as adults, ready to multiply. And finally, Adam and Eve, likewise as adults, able to speak and multiply. For inanimate objects, on day 4, God created the sun and stars already shining. All this is creation with functional maturity. In contrast, there is an errant concept of creation with apparent age. One obvious flaw is that age has no appearance. Rather, we infer an age from appearance. After making certain assumptions about processes changing over time and about the starting conditions, I will try to explain further, presenting some case studies from scripture and from various Christians, including the errant but often misunderstood ideas of Philip Goss. God Created with Functional Maturity by Jonathan Sarfati Originally published March 2015 A hypothetical modern observer who traveled back in time to see Adam and Eve at the end of day six might infer they were 20-year-old adults, but in reality they were less than a day old. However, they were mature adults. Also, when created, the blood in their arteries was already oxygenated, so it could power the cells in the body. Nowadays, the oxygen comes from the air through the lungs into the blood. But one striking feature distinguishing them from all their descendants would be the absence of navels, since the navel, umbilicus or belly button, is the scar where the umbilical cord attached us to our mothers via the placenta. There is also the thinning of the abdominal muscles, which is a potential vulnerability to hernias. Adam and Eve were direct creations of God, so had no navel. A navel in either of them would seem to have no function apart from looking like a history that never happened. Some have fallaciously claimed that Adam and Eve had navels, because they would have had genes for them to pass on to their offspring. However, it's not just a matter of having genes for a navel. Genes are also switched on and off in precise sequence during embryonic development. Any genes controlling the navel are expressed during embryo development as tissues accommodate the umbilical cord. So today, our tissues are arranged in this way because of developmental sequence more than genetic code per se. So, since Adam and Eve had no mothers, there would have been no development of the navel. Such arguments also overlook that Adam and Eve also had genes for embryonic and fetal hemoglobin, deciduous teeth, growth hormone, and controlling the changes in puberty, since these were all passed on to their descendants. But in this founding couple created as fully grown adults, these genes were never expressed either. Similarly, the trees on day three would be mature trees, and a time-traveling observer might infer that they were hundreds of years old. But if he chopped a tree down, he might be dumbfounded by the lack of growth rings. Growth rings today are a record of mostly seasonal changes in the rate of wood growth, although not always annual. For example, in dry climates, such as those in which the long-lived Bristol Cone Pines grow, 
Each heavy rainfall can produce a new ring. Also, even trees growing next to each other don't always have the same growth patterns, so correlations are problematic. Similarly, God probably created the sun with a fair amount of helium. A good amount of helium seems like a design feature so that the sun is hot enough. The reason is as follows. A helium nucleus, alpha particle, takes up less room than four hydrogen nuclei, proteins. This makes the core contract, and the higher temperature and pressure increases the rate of nuclear fusion, hence energy output. It may also be responsible for the sun's exceptional stability. But working back, a pure hydrogen sun would be much cooler. This is called the faint young sun paradox. Evolutionists and long-agers believe that life appeared on the Earth about 3.8 billion years ago. But if that were true, the sun would be 25% brighter today than it was back then. This implies that the Earth would have been frozen at an average temperature of negative 3 degrees Celsius. However, most paleontologists believe that, if anything, the Earth was warmer in the past. Does mature creation make God a deceiver? By no means. Since age is an inference based on assumptions, there is no deception involved when people make the wrong assumptions about the starting conditions. Indeed, how could God be deceiving when he has told us plainly when he created? Rather, those who deny his word are deceiving themselves. A charge of deception could only imply if the appearance of a false history were created, one which was totally unnecessary for functional maturity. Since we're here now, let's look at some of the discussion on Goss in The Issue of Light Created in Transit. This concept has been cleverly illustrated by a parable about a candle which I thoroughly recommend as a good way of understanding why maturity is not deceptive. Philip Henry Goss, 1810-1888, was an English biblical creationist who was also a leading scientist, writer, and popularizer, almost the David Attenborough of Victorian England, apart from Attenborough's staunch atheopathy, of course. Goss was also an accomplished marine biologist and ornithologist, and inventor of the seawater aquarium. But regrettably, he is best known for one monumental blunder. Goss was a contemporary of Darwin. To understand the background, Darwin's biological evolution was firmly based on geological evolution and long ages as taught by his mentor Charles Lyell and Lyell's hero, James Hutton, 1726-1797. By Darwin's time, much of the church had already capitulated to the latter. Goss had not, though. In 1857, two years before Darwin wrote Origin of Species, Goss tried to refute Long Ages with his omphalos, an attempt to untie the geological knot. Omphalos is Greek for navel, and Goss believed that Adam and Eve were created with them. Most modern readers actually misunderstood what Goss proposed. Goss's failure was unfortunately to propose the unbiblical idea that time moved in a circle, which got interrupted when he created. Goss called this time of real history since creation diachronic, while before creation, the cycling time was unreal, virtual time he called prochronic. Thus, Adam and Eve would have been created with a navel to reflect a prochronic history of growing from a mother's womb even though there was no real diachronic history of such a thing. 
Indeed, no evidence in the present could differentiate features produced in diachronic or prochronic time. Gauss said, We cannot avoid the conclusion that each organism was from the first mart with the records of a previous being. But since creation and previous history are inconsistent with each other, as the very idea of the creation of an organism excludes the idea of pre-existence of that organism, or any part of it, it follows that such records are false, so far as they testify to time, that the developments and processes thus recorded have been produced without time, or are what I call prochronic. However, he won not a single convert to his views at the time, precisely because Christians thought that it would make God a deceiver. As shown, this was not Goss's intention, but this is what everyone inferred. Also, scientists didn't like it because it was ad hoc, and making no practical difference was also thus untestable. Nor has any modern creationist ever accepted the idea of God faking it, or planting evidence to test faith or such rubbish, despite the rather dishonest claims to the contrary by some mysotheists, and even some sloppily researching theists who should know better. But wait a second here, I've got one for you. Under an atheistic morality, what's wrong with deception? One evolutionist educator is even on record claiming that it's okay to deceive kids if it helps them believe in evolution. However, although Goss was trying to defend the Bible, the Bible teaches a real linear history. Indeed, this was one feature that led to the blossoming of modern science in Christianized Europe. Conversely, a cyclical view of history goes back to the pagan Greek philosophers, and it's still followed by Eastern religions. Goss's view also contradicts 2 Peter 3.3-6. Scoffers will deliberately ignore this fact. The world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. This suggests that the flood must have left some dramatic evidence. Otherwise, why would scoffers be held culpable for deliberately ignoring the fact of the flood if there was no evidence? Yet Goss's theory of prochronic time is by definition indistinguishable from uniformitarian real time. By similar reasoning, Romans 1.18-22 is a good argument against theistic evolution. Verse 20 says, Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely, his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. This passage clearly teaches that unbelievers won't have the slightest excuse for unbelief, because God's power and deity can be clearly seen from nature. This seems to be a strong support for the argument from design. Both these passages imply that the fault is not just ignoring the testimony of God's written word, although that is bad enough. Rather, they hold the unbelievers culpable even for ignoring the independent support in nature. It's common to claim that this book made Goss a lifelong failure, largely because of the purported biography Father and Son, published in 1907 by his embittered apostate son Edmund, who lived from 1849 to 1928. In reality, Amphilos was more an anomaly, written in the months after Philip's beloved first wife Emily died painfully of breast cancer. In the three years after Amphilos, Goss published four books and over 30 scientific papers, and in 1860, he began a second very happy marriage with Eliza Brightwen, 
who lived from 1813 to 1900, who became a loving stepmother to young Edmund. A modern biographer of the Gosses has documented serious errors of fact in father and son, and argued that Edmund was jealous of his father's superior abilities, and tried to elevate himself by denigrating his father's character. Now, let's circle back around to the light created in transit. Many creationists in the past have proposed a solution to this distant starlight problem, that God created not only the stars, but also the light beams in transit. But this is reminiscent of Gauss's Omphalos idea. It fails for the same reason. While neither Gauss nor these creationists intend this, it would make God into a deceiver, by showing supposed evidence of events that have not happened. That is, this light pattern would show events that under this theory have never happened. For example, a supernova is an explosion of a massive star that temporarily outshines its entire galaxy. But in what's called core collapse supernovae, this explosion is preceded by a collapse of the outer layers. This results in huge amounts of fusion reactions that produce enormous numbers of neutrinos. These are ghostly particles that interact only by the nuclear weak force, so mostly pass straight through matter. Then this implosion kind of bounces, creating the explosion that we see. But because neutrinos pass almost unimpeded through matter, while light doesn't, we detect the neutrinos from a supernova several hours before the light. But the light created in transit model would entail that a neutrino stream was created followed by a light stream, and just appear as if a supernova had exploded according to the laws of physics. Many people have been misled into thinking that the Genesis account of creation is not actual history, but is just some sort of theological argument. If you're stuck on the authenticity of Genesis history or know someone who is, a great booklet to read is 15 Reasons to Take Genesis as History. This book shows succinctly why those who believe in the inspiration of Scripture have no intellectually honest choice but to take Genesis as straightforward literal events just as Jesus did. This quick read powerfully challenges one of the major problems in the church today that affects the authority of the entire Bible. Read it and give it to your pastor, or particularly anyone contemplating theological training. It could save them from getting derailed by some of the misleading arguments common in theological academia. 15 Reasons to Take Genesis as History is available from the store at creation.com. I am Joseph Darnell. For all of us at creation.com, thanks for listening.